Welcome to uh, Search Kuwait's uh, session. Uh, we welcome you all again. Uh, thank you for joining us. We have a special guest uh, today, uh, joining us all the way from uh, Ottawa, Canada. Um, he is uh, uh, Dr. Jad Abu Khalil. He's a general surgeon and an assistant professor. He graduated from medical school and residency at McGill University in Montreal. Then he completed fellowship training in hepatopancreato biliary surgery at Seattle, Virginia's Mason Medical Center. As a hepatobiliary surgeon, he is primarily interested in the surgical treatment of diseases of the liver, pancreas, and biliary tree, and has a special interest in laparoscopic and minimally invasive techniques. So welcome, Dr. Jad. Thank you. Uh, we're gonna keep the, inter the uh, session pretty interactive. So if you have any questions, uh, just interject and we'll address them right away. There will be some questions rolling through and some clinical scenarios to, uh, for us to talk to. And again, that discussion can be pretty interactive if you want. Um, we're gonna start with an anatomical review, a pretty brief one since this is uh, directed mostly towards senior, uh, senior level trainees, so PGY fours and fives. So we're not gonna go into too much detail, just the kind of details that are relevant for, um, for the surgeries that we'll be performing and assisting on talking a little bit about physiology, uh, and then we'll dive right into acute pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis, and the complications of these, uh, of these conditions and their surgical, with a specific focus on their surgical management. Uh, we'll be talking about pancreatic resections, their themes and their variations. We'll be talking about pancreas cancer. We'll be talking about cystic lesions of the pancreas as well as solid lesions of the pancreas, both uh, benign, premalignant, and malignant. Okay, a quick anatomical review before we really get into it. So sorry to interrupt you, uh, Dr. Judd, but we'll have the questions before or after the review. Uh, the, the questions, uh, or oh, if you want to start with your questions, uh, you can go ahead and put them through now. Um, yeah, we'll try to let us guys know if you guys can see the uh, questions, the poll questions, and if you guys can answer them. Do you have them on slides, Dr. Jad, or by any chance? Um, I don't have them on, in a separate presentation. They will come through in the presentation later on, but oh, I can see presentation. Okay, you guys can see the questions on the poll. If it pops up. This is just, uh, we'll just have an overview idea of uh, your uh, knowledge just before we start the lecture, and then we'll have the uh, the poll revealed again with the answers, and see um, if you guys grasp the knowledge from the lecture itself. So we'll just give the audience a couple of minutes, three minutes, just to answer questions. If you guys can answer on the poll, that would be perfect. I'll just make an announcement before um, before we start. No, it's five questions, so we'll 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 have five questions just before we start. At the end of the lecture, we'll have two announcements, so guys, stay tuned. All right, we'll have just one more minute. Third question is out. 
I'll give like 20 seconds for each question, guys, so we can start the lecture. And fourth question. Even if you guys don't know the question, take an educated uh, guess, and then hopefully we'll know the answer uh, during the lecture. And the last question is out, so I'll give you 30 seconds, and then Dr. Jad, you may continue, hopefully after they're all done. Okay, you can start, Dr. Jad. I think we're done with the questions. All right. So the pancreas has two embryological origins. One of them is from the dorsal bud, uh, and one of them is from the ventral bud. The ventral bud uh, finds its origin at the same place as the biliary primordium, and then between the sixth and the eighth week of gestation, it will rotate posteriorly to join with the dorsal uh, bud. In most of the pancreas, uh, the superior part of the head, the body, and the tail arise from the dorsal bud, and the inferior part of it, the inferior part of the head, and the caudate arise from the ventral bud. And when these two systems don't fuse, uh, you get what's called a pancreatic divism. A pancreatic divism occurs when the superior part of the pancreas, mainly the tail, the body, the superior part of the head, drains through an accessory uh, duct, an accessory papilla and the lower part of the head and the uncus drain through, uh, through the main papilla, uh, through the worsening. Um, you'll find it quoted as a rare cause of pancreatitis, and that's really the, the key word here, is that it is a rare cause of pancreatitis. Almost 10% of the population has a divism and they have no problems with it. So just having a divism in and of itself is not a pathologic uh, entity. Um, this embryological origin of the pancreas can lead to other um, to other embryological uh, or congenital anomalies, including a, uh, an annular pancreas, which usually presents in childhood, as well as multiple, multiple uh, ectopic locations of the pancreas, including ectopia in the stomach, in mechosa reticuli, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, this is just an MRCP image that is showing you the divism. So you have the tail, the body, uh, the neck and the upper part of the head of the pancreas that are draining through an accessory pancreatic duct. And you have the uh, lower part of the head and the uncus of the pancreas, uh, so coming from the ventral bud, draining separately and joining up with the common bowel duct. The pancreas is a retroperitoneal organ. You have to enter the retroperitoneum to see it. Uh, and most of the time, the way that you're going to see it is by opening up the lesser sac and uh, by uh, amputating the gastrocolic momentum. Um, and in fact, the pancreas is one of the, because of this location in the retroperitoneum, it was one of the last organs to be discovered. So Galen knew what the stomach, knew what the pancreas was, knew of its origin, but they didn't think that it played any physiological roles. They thought its exclusive role was to just cushion the mesenteric vessels. And in fact, the Arabs believed that as well. Uh, medieval Arab physicians did not ever comment on any pathologies of the pancreas, didn't think that it was physiologically relevant. They thought it was just a cushion of the mesenteric vessels. And you can't blame them for thinking that when you look at its anatomical relationship to the surrounding vessels. Um, this is really the surgical core. Uh, this is the nexus of all the gastrointestinal systems and the um, 
the vascular systems that feed and drain the, the gut. Um, and these anatomical relationships are critical to understand for the safe conduct of uh, pancreatic surgery. There are important anatomical vascular relationships. Um, the common hepatic artery courses superiorly to the neck of the pancreas, gives rise to the gastrointestinal artery, which has to be amputated whenever you're resecting the head of the pancreas. Um, there are also multiple variations of the hepatic arterial anatomy, and even though they're not the purpose of this talk, they are relevant to, uh, to the conduct of a Whipple procedure, for example. If you have an aberrant uh, right hepatic artery that would typically course behind the portal vein, um, and if you're doing a Whipple and you're not aware of the presence of such an ab aberrant vessel, you might amputate that vessel when you're trying to amputate the common bowel duct usually uh, with disastrous consequences. Um, pathological conditions of this arterial blood supply, for example, a stenosis of the celiac artery with retrograde flow through the gastrointestinal artery is something that you also have to be aware of if you're considering a Whipple procedure. And that's usually something that I'm sure you've seen your attendings test for in the operating room. They put a clamp on the gastrointestinal artery, make sure that you have preserved flow in the hepatic artery before amputating the gastrointestinal artery and proceeding with the Whipple. Uh, if you have retrograde flow through the gastrointestinal artery, usually that indicates that you have a stenosis at the celiac artery and the flow is uh, collateralizing or retrograding through the gastrointestinal artery. You, unless you address that in one way or another, you cannot proceed with your Whipple. Otherwise, you'd be depriving the liver, specifically the biliary circulation of arterial uh, supply. The splenic artery courses on the superior aspect of the tail uh, of the body and the tail of the pancreas. The superior mesenteric artery, of course, arises above the left renal vein and then courses behind the pancreas, emerging inferiorly into the root of the mesentery. And of course, the portal vein, the splenic vein, and the confluence with the superior mesenteric vein, as well as the IMV, are all joining up, usually around the neck of the pancreas. Again, in a variety of different configurations, which you have to know um, before you're going to the operating room. Where's the inferior mesenteric vein? plugging into this confluence? Is it plugging into the splenic vein the way that it usually does? Is it coming into the, uh, the confluence with the SMV or even perhaps lower down into the SMV? And all of these relationships and their variations are important in designing uh, pancreatic surgery, especially if you're entertaining a venous reconstruction. Uh, very often, these procedures start with a wide cocorization. Again, the, the head of the pancreas and the pancreas itself is retroperitoneal and part of mobilizing it is performing this wide cocor maneuver. This is usually what will give you exposure to the superior mesenteric artery posteriorly. Uh, and it does help to mobilize some of the right colon to obtain that exposure as well. Most of what we'll be talking about today is the exocrine pancreas. The, the pancreas is actually two organs fused in one, the exocrine pancreas and the, en and the endocrine pancreas, which we'll be talking about a bit later uh, in the session. The exocrine pancreas has, is a, essentially a collection of acini that are uh, excreting pancreatic secretions into a pancreatic ductal epithelial network. These acini synthesize and excrete pancreatic enzymes, but they also uh, synthesize and excrete bicarbonate, which is important. Um, these enzymes are stored within small vesicles with a trypsin inhibitor and then excreted in response to uh, neurohormonal stimulation that is secreted um, in response to the presence of peptides and fat in the proximal duodenum, 
use CCK and secrete and what modulates these. Uh, that's where you can have mutations in the gene for trypsin inhibitors, FINK1, that can cause chronic pancreatitis by essentially uh, predisposing to premature activation of the pancreatic enzymes within the vesicles in the SNI and starting a cascade of inflammatory response that leads to chronic pancreatitis. We'll talk about that a bit later. Let's talk a little bit about acute pancreatitis. Um, before we go into that, any questions about anatomy? Uh, this was kind of a very surface level uh, review. We can talk for hours about pancreatic anatomy. Um, if there's no questions, we'll just go ahead. All right. Uh, the exact mechanism of acute pancreatitis is unknown. We think it has something to do with premature activation of pancreatic enzyme DSNI, and this can arise uh, due to a variety of causes. Globally, uh, certainly in North America, alcohol and gallstones are the most common cause of acute pancreatitis. They cause about 80% of uh, acute pancreatitis. Uh, and then depending on the locale, the next uh, most common cause is either iatrogenic or trauma. Um, and these are going to be uh, the iatrogenic uh, episodes of pancreatitis are most commonly caused by ERCPs. 5% of ERCPs lead to a clinically relevant pancreatitis, uh, and that's not, not, not negligible. Um, and then the differential diagnosis for the cause of pancreatitis is extremely broad. Anything from uh, trauma to anything that could obstruct the pancreatic duct from uh, congenital issues. We discussed uh, pancreas division and other congenital conditions, uh, malignant and pre-malignant uh, causes of pancreatic ductal obstruction, uh, autoimmune causes, which we'll get into a little bit uh, further down, as well as genetic, uh, genetic causes or genetic predisposing factors as well. Metabolic causes, hypertalcemia, dyslipidemia, uh, and pharmacologic and toxins. There's a variety of pharmacologic agents that have been associated with pancreatitis, anything from antibiotics to corticosteroids uh, to biological agents. Uh, um, you know, the list is really endless. Um, the definition um, of pancreatitis is defined by the Atlanta criteria, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, but essentially calls for completing two out of three um, diagnostic criteria, them being pain that is consistent with the diagnosis of, chronic, of acute pancreatitis. This is a pain that is typically epigastric, that radiates into the back, that can be sometimes alleviated by certain body positions, specifically lying forward. Um, radiologic signs of pancreatitis, so pancreatitis that is diagnosed on a CT scan, on an ultrasound, or on an MRI. And finally, biochemical evidence of pancreatitis, specifically with amylasemia. The Atlanta criteria, which were originally devised in the 90s and revised in the uh, early 20-teens, um, divide pancreas into two broad categories. And these categories are important for you to know as clinicians and to understand and to kind of be able to place your patients in these two broad categories because the natural history of the disease is gonna be very different. And the first category is that of an interstitial edematous pancreatitis. That's when you have acute inflammation of the pancreatic parenchyma and the peripancreatic tissues, but really without any significant distortion of the pancreatic parenchyma or tissue necrosis specifically. The entirety of the pancreatic parenchyma enhances normally with intravenous contrast agents, um, and there's no necrosis. 
this is a slide that's uh, issued directly from the Atlanta uh, criteria. Um, the second category is necrotizing pancreatitis. And that, of course, is a second tier of complications with natural history that ends up being very different. Uh, and it, on the CT scan of someone with necrotizing pancreatitis, you um, will see areas of necrosis, meaning areas of hypoenhancement where there's no uptake of contrast, dead pancreas, essentially. Um, you have to be a little bit careful committing someone to one course or, or the other very early in their course, saying, oh, this person definitely has a interstitial edematous pancreatitis and they don't have necrosis. Because if you capture patients very early in the course of their disease, uh, the full clinical severity may not have declared itself. So if you scan someone the minute that they get into your emergency room, you may not appreciate the fact that they are actually in the early phases of developing necrosis. If you rescan them you know, in five or six days, then you'll see the full extent of, uh, of the severity of their Just Before we move on, uh, Dr. Jad, there's a question from Razel. She's asking, does congenital and genetic causes lead to acute or chronic pancreatitis? Is there any yeah, relationship? That's a, question. that's a good question. They typically lead to chronic pancreatitis, and, and we'll talk about that later. So the, some of the, the genetic uh, mutations aren't causing recurrent acute pancreatitis. They're usually causing chronic pancreatitis, so specifically STINK1 mutations and PSS1 mutations. That being said, you can have some variants of certain genes that don't in and of themselves cause any troubles, but that predispose you to developing uh, episodes of acute pancreatitis in response to certain triggers. And the typical example is that of tropical pancreatitis or so-called tropical pancreatitis, where there may be certain specific mutations that predispose you to developing episodes of acute pancreatitis in response to certain foods, specifically cassava uh, or cassava flour. So uh, for the most part, these are ge genetic mutations that are leading to chronic pancreatitis, but there are cohorts of patients who are predisposed to developing episodes of acute pancreatitis in response to certain stimuli. Perfect. Um, but that's an important question because I think the distinction between acute and chronic pancreatitis is very much obfuscated in the minds of many, certainly of many patients, uh, but also of a surprising number of trainees um, who, especially in complicated acute pancreatitis, are starting to think, well, now that's just chronic pancreatitis and it's not. And we'll, we'll explore that a little bit lower down. Um, the fluid connections that accompany these two categories uh, uh, are also not interchangeable. And that's why, again, if you know what kind of pancreatitis they have, if they have interstitial edematous pancreatitis or necrotizing pancreatitis, then you'll be able to predict what kind of fluid connections they're having. In um, interstitial edematous pancreatitis, the early kinds of fluid connections that you're gonna have are called acute peripancreatic fluid connections, sometimes abbreviated APFC. And then past the four week time period, once these fluid collections have walled off and matured, uh, they become, uh, they become uh, a pancreatic pseudocyst, a collection of pancreatic fluid that may or may not be communicating with the pancreatic duct being fed into by, the, by a pancreatic duct, but that contains no, uh, necro no necrotic material from the pancreas itself as opposed to necrotizing pancreatitis, where earlier on you may have an acute, acute necrotic collection that after a certain number of weeks, usually four to six weeks, will mature into what we call WON or WAN or walled off necrosis. 
And uh, so it's important to distinguish these entities from each other. Pancreatitis has an early phase and then it has a late phase. And the mortality that accompanies pancreatitis uh, follows this kind of bimodal, these bimodal phases. The early phase is characterized by an acute inflammatory response. And the patients that die in the early phase die from essentially overwhelming inflammation and overwhelming sepsis. In the late phases, you get local complications, and that's what you're dealing with. And there's mortality there from sepsis, from infectious complications, sometimes hemorrhagic complications as well. Um, and again, that's not to say that the patients who are dealing with the late complications of acute pancreatitis have chronic pancreatitis. They don't. They are dealing with the sequelae of acute pancreatitis. So they have complicated acute pancreatitis. And ultrasound is recommended to rule out gallstones almost universally. You want to know if someone has gallstone pancreatitis because that does change things not in the immediate phase, but eventually as to what needs to happen for this patient. But there's global agreement that a CT scan is the best imaging modality for acute pancreatitis. Again, with the caveat that we discussed earlier that you can't define the extent of necrosis in the first few days of the disease. So it's not really important to scan the patient as soon as they get to the hospital, unless you're trying to rule out other pathologies uh, on the differential diagnosis. But it is important that that patient gets a CT scan at some point somewhat early on, just so that you have an idea of what kind of, what kind of pancreatitis you're dealing with and what you should expect in terms of the life history of this patient. Uh, the Atlanta classification grades pancreatitis in grades of severity, mild, moderate, and severe based on the presence of uh, synchronous organ injury. And uh, this also correlates with the presence of necrosis or, or not. There are different tools that help you predict uh, the clinical severity of pancreatitis. These are the Ransom criteria, which I'm sure you've all heard about. They're right there on the, on the screen. They are often on, uh, on board exams, so you just should just know this by heart. Whether the Ransom score is actually used clinically very often is more debatable because you do need a 48-hour window for the Ransom score to be, to be calculated. You have to measure some laboratory markers at admission and then 48 hours later. And you have to purposefully send off some of these labs which are not necessarily universally sent, things like the calcium level um, or the blood urea nitrogen level. Apache 2 is also a good correlate for severity and is, is used more often. The only downside to it is that it is a proprietary algorithm. And the CRP is sometimes used as a, as a marker with a level of over 150 correlating with severe pancreatitis. The CT findings also correlate with the severity. Uh, there's a CT severity index, also known as the Balthazar score, uh, that assigns a certain number of scores to the presence of uh, you know, only inflammation, um, a normal pancreas, so just a biochemical pancreatitis with no radiologic findings, uh, enlargement, so that's a, a B or a bulky pancreas, uh, and then getting into the presence of fluid collections and then with or without necrosis the uh, degree of necrosis or the proportion of the percentage of necrosis of the pancreas correlates with the clinical severity as well. Um, and it also correlates with the likelihood of the patient progressing to an infected necrosis. The more necrotic pancreas you have, the more likely you are to have infected necrosis. Just before we move on, Dr. John, there's just two questions. Uh, one question from Abdul Aziz, he's asking, is there anatomic cause of, I'm assuming he's saying, uh, of pancreatitis that cannot, of we cannot define in first few days? Is there an anatomic cause? 
if we cannot define like that's I'm not, question. I'm not sure I understand. Um, I'm not sure I understand. And I, I think he's asking if there if there is a, a correlation of uh, anatomy with pancreatitis if the cause cannot be defined in the first few days. So if it's not gallstones or alcohol, can anatomy be a reason for pancreatitis? Uh, like an um, no, no, essentially no. There's no, uh, yeah, no, you can't quite, you can't quite say if it's not alcohol or gallstones, you can't say, well, I haven't found the cause. It is more likely to be an anatomical cause. You still have to go through your entire differential diagnosis, do your metabolic workup, um, look at, uh, you know, look at all of the other, uh, reasons. Are there any medications that are new? Do they have any infections? Uh, keep investigating basically. Yeah. You have to go back and, to the and another question, what about serum amylase and lipase? Do we use them yeah. for diagnosis? Yeah, so that's the third criteria in the Atlanta classification. So you need an elevation in amylase or lipase. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's three times the upper limit of normal for it to be considered uh, an amylase. So you need two of the three criteria. You need pain that is consistent with a diagnosis of pancreatitis. Um, you need radiologic findings of pancreatitis. You need the biochemical amylasemia or lipasemia. You have two of these three factors, you have pancreatitis, according to the standard definition. There's another question, but I think it might be answered later. How to differentiate between pseudocyst and walled-off necrosis on imaging, and what are yeah, the findings? So, yeah, that's a good question. So the pseudocyst does not contain any necrotic material, right? Um, I think it says so like very briefly here. Um, uh, yeah, you, you essentially don't have any ne necrotic pancreatic material within a pseudocyst. You just have an inflammatory, a wall that's made up of sloughed off inflammatory uh, fibrinopurulent material, uh, and then the contents are pancreatic fluid, as opposed to a walled off necrosis, which is a dead pancreas that has been walled off uh, by, by surrounding infl inflammatory response. Thank you. Uh, okay. So we're talking about treatment. Uh, so treatment of pancreatitis is supportive. Uh, we have no cure for pancreatitis. Um, so everything that we do is just supporting the patient and then dealing with the sequelae, with the local sequelae. Uh, some patients certainly need to go to the intensive care unit uh, if they are cl clinically unwell, if they have organ failure, if they have respiratory decompensation, et cetera. Uh, the critical points for everyone to know that are often on, on exams uh, and that are very important for you in your clinical practice as you're managing these patients is that early enteric nutrition is favored over parental nutrition. Your temptation is not to feed these patients and just give them TPN. That is the wrong thing to do. You have to feed these patients enterically. Um, Big debate as to whether the feeds should be post-pyloric uh, in the jejunum, so initial jejunal feed, or if they can just be in the stomach. At the Cochrane Review, there's really no uh, convincing benefit of one versus the other. So you just do what you can to feed this patient. There may be a benefit of immunonutrition, but the exact formulation is not known. Um, and so you just use what you have in your own hospital. Uh, the other thing that you should all know, uh, and that should be kind of standard everywhere, is that there's no role for antibiotics in the absence of infected necrosis. Uh, a patient with, um, with pancreatitis will often have a fever, will often have a leukocytosis. 
But if you don't have any evidence that they have an infected necrosis or that you're dealing with another kind of infectious uh, complication, they don't need prophylactic antibiotics. Um, and then another thing that everyone should be aware of is that patients with a gallstone pancreatitis should have a cholecystectomy prior to discharge. Um, and that is the standard at the moment, is that the cholecystectomy should be done just prior to discharge. You know, when you're ready to send this patient home, they're totally fine, they're eating, uh, their vital signs have normalized, uh, they have normalized biochemically, that you would then operate on this patient just before they go home. Um, it may be acceptable to do an early cholecystectomy in patients with a very minor uh, episode of pancreatitis. Uh, that's what the gallstone pan trial suggests, um, but that is still not very clear from the data as to exactly who that patient may be. Uh, and so the most prudent thing probably remains to just do the cholecystectomy uh, at time of discharge. That's certainly our practice. Okay, treating the sequelae, specifically pseudocysts. Um, there's no interventions that are warranted for asymptomatic pseudocysts. Just because someone has a pseudocyst doesn't mean you need to do anything about it. You're really only addressing the symptoms that are being caused by the pseudocysts. And typically these symptoms are early satiety, pain, gastric tractor obstruction, you have a large pseudocyst in the endostat that is pressing on the stomach and the patient can't eat. That's a pseudocyst that you can do something about. And the way that you address these cysts is one of two ways, either through an endoscopic cyst gastrostomy or by a surgical treatment with a surgical cyst gastrostomy or a surgical, surgical uh, Rouen-Y cyst jejunostomy if there's no close approximation between the lumen of the stomach and the cyst. And that is preferable over interventional radiological interventions that essentially commit the patient to a pancreatic fistula, a cutaneous pancreatic fistula. If there's infected necrosis, then you're dealing with it in a slightly different manner as well. Um, as we said, the degree of necrosis also correlates with the risk of this patient developing infected necrosis, and it's about a 30, 50, 70. If there's 30% of the pancreas that's necrosed, you have about a 30% chance you can develop infected necrosis. It's about 50%, there's about a 50, 50 chance you're gonna have infected necrosis. If 70% or more of the pancreas is necrotic, then the risk of you developing infected necrosis is quite high. You should suspect infected necrosis if there's persistent leukocytosis or fever. But as we said, a lot of patients with pancreatitis have leukocytosis and fever. That just in and of itself doesn't justify you starting them on antibiotics. Um, unless this is the kind of situation where the patient has been there for you know, four weeks, their leukocytosis fevers are not improving and getting worse, they're clinically worsening. Um, the hallmarks of infection are a positive blood culture or a positive aspirate from uh, the necrosis itself and the presence of air in the necrosis. The presence of air in the necrosis doesn't completely indicate or doesn't exclusively indicate infection because it could be an indication of spontaneous fistulization with a hollow viscous, um, but that's an indication that that, that is a patient that should be on antibiotics. And typically the antibiotic of choice is gonna be a broad spectrum antibiotic, a carbapenem specifically, which we know has better penetration into pancreatic tissues uh, than other antibiotics. So that is the standard, and that should be your exam answer. Um, you should only intervene on walled-off necrosis. That's a very important point. You should resist operating early. Uh, even if someone is not doing well, uh, you know, they're three, four, five weeks uh, after their presentation, you should absolutely resist the urge of doing anything at all until the, until the necrosum has walled off completely. Uh, if you operate before that, uh, it can be quite, uh, quite tricky. And the treatment is again twofold, either endoscopic or surgical. The, the goal is ultimately the same. 
the goal is a necrosectomy to remove the dead material, uh, the infected dead material. Surgical necrosectomy is extremely morbid. It has a very high morbidity rate, and you should really reserve it only for the most in extremis uh, patients. Um, you're also essentially committing that patient also to a pancreatic cutaneous fistula, multiple drains, multiple reinterventions. Um, and there are also other options such as uh, uh, some less invasive options like a VARD, which stands for Videoscopically Assisted Retroperitoneal Dissection. And that's essentially when you start with a percutaneous drain, slowly upsize the drain over time to give you access into the cavity um, and then perform essentially a, uh, a laparoscopic uh, resection or use a laparoscopic instrument to pull out some of the necrosum from that cavity. And the most common complications at that point is a hemorrhagic complication. There may be other times when you are taking a patient with infected necrosis to the OR for another reason. So for example, they've developed uh, a compartment syndrome. You've taken them to the operating room for a decompressive laparotomy. That may also be a time to kind of uh, you know, do some debridement at the same time. This is often what you end up with. Um, which seems like uh, something that will just make everything better, uh, but it often isn't. Um, and often these patients will struggle quite a bit in their recovery. Again, the mortality rate of doing something like this is about 30%. But there's different ways of doing these necrosectomies. You can open the lesser sac, drain out, uh, you know, remove whatever necrosum you can, and the necrosum is typically just gonna fracture off with your fingers. Uh, you have to try not to be too aggressive with your necrosectomy at this point because you could easily uh, start getting into blood vessels and, and significant bleeding. Again, hemorrhagic complications are, are very common. So you just do a little bit, you leave wide local drainage, and you get out of dodge. Now, very often the lesser sac is not accessible in the way that it is shown in this picture because the stomach is completely fused to the anterior capsule of the pancreas. So you're stuck having to access the lesser sac or the pancreatic or the pancreatic necrosis through other ways such as by lifting the colon up and entering directly through the mesocolon or going in laterally. Uh, this is just an illustration of a VARD. So you have a chest tube, in, you have a drain in place. You slowly upsize that, uh, that drain to the size of a chest tube, 32 French chest tube. And then you do it through there uh, using a nephroscope and the laparoscopic grasper. And again, uh, you can see how problematic that can be. If you start bleeding in a space like that, you really have no way of controlling it. So you have to be very gentle uh, with your necrosin. And there are patients, there are many, many patients who have died from a VARD necrosectomy, um, gone awry, mostly from hemorrhagic complications. You know, you rupture the splenic artery this way and you cannot control that. Um, other complications of acute pancreatitis. Pancreatic ascites and pancreatic pleural fistula. Uh, the treatment is usually drainage. You drain whatever cavity it's fistulizing to. If it's a pleural fistula, you drain the pleura, you put a chest tube in. If it's in the peritoneum, you put a peritoneal drain, and then you fast the patient with some parenteral support with or without octreotide, and then you may consider an ERCP and a sphincterotomy and stenting to try and divert as much of the pancreatic fluid uh, through the papilla to try and decrease uh, the, provide a path of least, res least resistance for the pancreatic secretions. Okay, first questions. Uh, patient undergoes an open necrosectomy, um, wide local drainage two weeks ago, and they've been having, you know, the regular kind of purulent necrosum 
uh, fluid coming out from their drains until this morning, the fluid turned sanguineous. What is going to be the next best step? Should you kind of track that, thing, that drain back a little bit, thinking that maybe it's on a vessel or something? Do you just close clinical observation, just kind of wait and see? Do you do an upper endoscopy looking for an upper GI bleed? Uh, do you do an IR angioembolization? Do you go back to the operating room, find a bleeder, and put a suture in it? What do you want to do? Let me know, guys, if the poll is out. We have, uh, as the attendees are answering, we have just a few questions. Yeah. Um, uh, one is asking, which microorganism mostly affects the pancreas? Yeah, that's a very good question. So they're enteric organisms. Uh, so they're going to be enteric flora, and they get there by translocation. Perfect. And the next question is, with regards to pseudocyst treatment, does the distance between the stomach and the pseudocyst play a role in deciding whether to go for endoscopic versus IR versus surgical drainage? Uh, that's right. So whether you're entertaining any kind of cyst gastrostomy, you need a level of approximation. It has to be close to the stomach. If not, you can't just bring them there uh, and suture them together. Uh, another option may be a cyst enterostomy. So as we said, um, voila. So either a cyst gastrostomy or a cyst uh, uh, cyst jejunostomy. Bring up a rule limb, suture that limb to, uh, to there. And then if you can't do that, then, then you're stuck with a percutaneous approach, which is not ideal because then you've committed that patient to a, to a percutaneous fistula. Perfect. Okay, so most people want to do clin close clinical observation. Um, and the answer is actually IR embolization. And it's actually IR embolization like stat, like right away. So that bleed is sometimes referred to as a sentinel bleed. It's giving you a little warning. There's a little red flashing warning that something is about something, that things are about to get very real, very fast with this patient. Um, and here we are talking about um, uh, the hemorrhagic complications of endovascular uh, uh, complications, hemorrhagic complications of acute pancreatitis. And on, on the arterial side, of course, that is uh, pseudoaneurysms. That necrosin contains pancreatic enzymes. They eventually erode through the media of arterial blood vessels. You develop a pseudoaneurysm, and eventually that pseudoaneurysm pops. And the moment it does, you actually have very little time uh, because, as I said, things are going to get very real very fast. And if you're just kind of dilly-dally and you're just waiting around and, oh, it's just a little bit of blood, uh, you know, it's just a couple of drops, uh, you've kind of lost the window of opportunity to act and save this patient's life. Another thing that can happen is that instead of that pseudoaneurysm popping into a drained pseudocyst uh, or into a drained uh, necrosum, uh, they can bleed into the substance of the pancreas. And what you get there is something called hemosuccus pancreaticus. You, know, you scope the, they have a GI bleed, you scope them, there's blood coming out of the ampulla, that blood is coming from the pancreas, that's also coming from a pseudoaneurysm, the treatment is also IR. So you have to have an urgent embolization for these patients. Thromboembolic disease on the venous side is also not uncommon. Uh, thrombosis of the splenic vein, of the superior mesenteric vein, the portal vein. And no invasive intervention is warranted here. There's a consideration of anticoagulation. And some of these patients eventually may develop semestral hypertension, but you'll, you'll deal with that uh, eventually. They just have to survive this episode. Okay, let's talk quickly about chronic pancreatitis. Um, 
That's a completely different mechanism from acute pancreatitis. It also consists of inflammation and chronic fibrosis, but it's chronic uh, low levels of inflammation and fibrosis through the pancreas. There is also an association with chronic alcohol use as opposed to an association with alcohol in acute pancreatitis where it's typically like a binge drink that triggers the episode. Smoking is the most common risk factor uh, globally in the general population. And there are, as we said, some genetic risk factors, SPINK1, PRSS1. And pain is a hallmark of chronic, hallmark of chronic pancreatitis and eventually leading down to endocrine and exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. And the pain has multiple causes within chronic pancreatitis. So sometimes you'll have pain that's caused by increased pressure within a duct. You have a structure, a stricture in the pancreatic duct. The upstream pancreatic duct dilates, fills with stones, and you get pain from that pressure buildup in the pancreatic duct. Alternatively, you could have pain from chronic fibrosis and remodeling that distorts the head of the pancreas to the point where the head of the pancreas itself, even though there's not much anatomical distortion of the duct, becomes a pacemaker of pain. And so when you're thinking about designing surgeries to treat chronic pancreatitis, uh, you want to try and understand in this specific patient, where is most of the pain coming from? Is it coming from a ductal issue with a dilated duct full of stones and, and pancreatic secretions? Or is this anatomical distortion of the head and a pain pacemaker? Of course, the inflammation doesn't just affect the pancreas. It affects structures that are around the pancreas, specifically the bile duct, and patients can be jaundiced, or the duodenum, which can be distorted, causing gastric ductal obstruction and inability to eat. The treatment is, is not... For most patients, the treatment is not surgical. It's only a minority of patients with chronic pancreatitis that end up going to the OR for a surgery. Um, so really, the first thing you're going to do is symptom control. Uh, these patients have to be on a World Health Organization pain ladder that starts with NSAIDs and slowly progresses to opioids. Pancreatic enzyme supplementation is a critical part of that uh, because there's a role in decreasing feedback loops through the pancreas in terms of decreasing CCK and uh, and, and stimulation of pancreatic secretions. In certain uh, circumstances, there is a role for endoscopic treatments. For example, someone who has a really proximal uh, stricture in the pancreatic duct, you could access that you could access by ERCP. You can put a stent across that, remove stones from the pancreatic head, uh, and treat them that way. And then, of course, surgical treatment, which is going to be guided by the local anatomy, specifically looking at a variety of things. Is there ductal dilatation? Is there jaundice? Is the duodenum involved? And is there a mass there that you're suspicious of that needs to be addressed as well? Let's go into some of those surgeries a little bit. You may have heard of a pustole procedure. This consists of a lateral Rouen-Y pancreatic ostomy, where you're essentially filleting open the pancreatic duct in the body and the neck of the pancreas and uh, suturing a rulim of jejunum to this flayed open uh, pancreatic duct. Obviously, it follows from that that this is a surgery that's going to be very good at controlling pain in patients who have a really big dilated pancreatic duct. But if that's not the anatomy of their chronic pancreatitis, then a pisto is not going to be helpful. and may actually be dangerous because it'll be very difficult to find a very small pancreatic duct. Um, Yeah, so obviously this is best for patients with dilated pancreatic duct, but who have no jaundice, no duodenal obstruction, a normal pancreatic head, that procedure can help them. A fry is a bit of a variation on that theme in that it uses a decompressive procedure for uh, the 
pancreatic duct, but it also pours out the head of the pancreas. And again, you're decompressing uh, the duct and then removing a small amount of the pancreatic head, but certainly you're leaving the pancreatic head behind and you're not usually touching the, the bile duct in a, in, a, in a fry, although sometimes you can. Um, sorry, this is, this is a bit of a typo, but there are other, other procedures as well, which have kind of gone out of favor. And then finally, there's the whipple. Uh, the WIPO is a good treatment for many patients because as HPV surgeons, we're quite familiar with how to do these procedures. And it is a combination of a decompressive procedure and a resectional procedure. It removes the head of the pancreas, the bile duct, the duodenum. So if there was a pacemaker there, or if there's a mass there that you're suspicious of, it's removed that. And it also gives you a pancreatic progestinostomy to drain out uh, the pancreatic duct. And it's going to be a really good option if the distal duct is not dilated. The main goal of these surgeries is to address pain, but most of these pains will redevelop pancreatitis. You don't stop the process just because you removed the head of the pancreas or decompressed them. They're, they still have chronic pancreatitis. And so these patients must be dealt with in a multidisciplinary fashion. You don't stop exocrine or endocrine dysfunction. You might delay the onset of that, but you don't stop it. And all these patients have an increased risk of pancreas cancer because of the chronic inflammation in the pancreatic parenchyma, and so there's a certain role for surveilling these patients on the long term. You don't just operate on them and, and then say, you know, sayonara, you're, you're good. You have to continue surveilling them because they are at a high risk of developing cancers in the future. And we're running a little bit over time, but uh, if there are some questions about chronic pancreatitis before we move on. There's this one question uh, saying, does ERCP work instead of lap coli in the case of biliary acute pancreatitis prior to discharge? So patient comes in, they just do an ERCP and gets discharged home. Yeah, so that's a very good question because you'll sometimes see people do that. There's actually no data to support that that is useful. The role of ERCP in biliary pancreatitis is limited to patients who have jaundice or have demonstrable choridocolithiasis. So just doing it, whether just doing an ERCP in someone who has acute biliary pancreatitis with no actual choridocolitis remnant um, is not, uh, has never been proven to be efficacious. A lot of people will say, well, I'll do the ERCP and then I, I don't really have to do the cholecystectomy. And again, there's no data to suggest that. Uh, you may choose to go that route in a very elderly patient, perhaps in someone in who, uh, Lap coli is simply not an option. Uh, you might take your mm -hmm. chances on that. You have to keep in mind that ERCP also causes pancreatitis like 5% of the time. So, I mean, especially with the COVID area, we're trying, uh, with the COVID era, we're trying to uh, um, decrease elective surgeries. So, sometimes doing ERCP and sending patients home, that's what uh, most hospitals are doing right now in Kuwait. Yeah, I've uh, never seen formal recommendation towards that. And I mean, an ERCP is also an area generating procedure. So uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. And uh, then reschedule them at a later date for the lab calling. Yeah, and um, that's something that is not unique to Kuwait. A lot of institutions do that. I've been in the US and Canada and a lot of people say, oh, you know, just get an ERCP. Obviously the decision is easier if they have chloridocolithiasis because then you, know, you say, oh, they mm -hmm. got this enterotomy, they can wait and I'll take the gallbladder out next month or, or whatever. Um, and I mean, we know from the randomized trials of 
the early versus delayed cholecystectomy, that patients who have a delayed cholecystectomy will recur. And a significant proportion of them will recur. And we recur ne not necessarily with the same uh, degree of clinical severity. They may have a worse pancreatitis next time around. You may have missed the window or, or make your job easier. So. Mm -hmm. And just, we'll just take one more question. There's a couple of uh, other questions. Just, we'll just take one more question, just uh, in sake of time. In case of uh, venous thromb thrombosis as a complication, any recommendations for the duration of the anticoagulant? And can we stop if follow CT showed resolution of the thrombus? Yeah, that's a very good question. So it's exceptionally rare that the CT scan shows resolution of the thrombus. Usually this patient will always have a thrombosis there. Um, and then whether you need to continue it beyond the three-month point is really debatable, and I think depends to a great extent on, on how much of their, of their mesenteric outflow is, is compromised. Um, you have to remember, people can, people can die from uh, mesenteric venous insufficiency, right? I mean, we think of ischemic, ischemic colitis or ischemic bowels as being really a consequence of, uh, of arterial issues, but, you know, you tie off someone's SMV uh, acutely, uh, they can have mesenteric ischemia. Um, mm -hmm. And very often in these contexts, they're able to collateralize. They collateralize through the IMV and through other things. But if the, uh, the level of the thrombosis is very high or many of the normal tributaries are also occluded, um, so is there like a time uh, duration for the anticoagulants usually? Yeah, there's no formal recommendation. We do three months and then we kind of play it by ear based on each individual patient's mm -hmm. uh, risk fall, bleeding fall, bleeding risk, things like that. Perfect. Uh, we'll stop for questions now on sake of time. Uh, sorry guys, but we'll ask the questions at a later time. All right, we're gonna get right into pancreatic masses. Uh, the first. NTT we're going to talk about is cystic neoplasms, sometimes abbreviated SCN. These are very rare entities. They constitute less than 1% of all pancreatic neoplasms. It's a true cyst, so it is not a pseudocyst. It is lined with a cuboidal epithelium. Um, and they're often polycystic and sometimes referred to as a honeycomb pattern. They're sometimes referred to as microcystic, uh, but there actually are a not insignificant variant of them that is uh, macrocystic, that have large cysts. And that can make them more easy to confuse for other entities like a mucinocystic neoplasm or bilotypiamen. We'll talk about these in a, bit, a little bit later. Just two weeks ago, we removed a, I removed a uh, cystic neoplasm thinking it was a mucinocystic neoplasm. They're mostly asymptomatic, even at very large sizes. Uh, you know, maybe a month ago, I saw this elderly woman who had a gigantic cystic neoplasm and she felt totally fine. This tumor occupied most of her right upper abdomen and she was totally okay because they grow very slowly and they don't occlude on anything. They don't cause jaundice typically um, uh, unless again at very like, dramatic sizes. So they're mostly asymptomatic and in those contexts you should, you really don't need to operate on them, especially if you know with good certainty that they're cystic neoplasms. And sometimes that is the, the trouble. If you're not able to tell exactly what it is, you may have no choice but to remove it or to simply watch it. They do grow with time. Uh, it's a slow growth in the smaller cysts and the larger cysts grow a bit faster. Um, you can consider, it says, there are some recommendations you can consider resections of the larger ones, but to me, if you knew beyond any reasonable doubt that this was a serocystic neoplasm, you don't need to remove this. 
there's an indication to remove them in the pediatric population, but again, we're just talking about adults here. Um, the argument there is that increased growth will likely lead to symptoms, but again, that's not universally true. Okay, question two. A 62-year-old female has lethargy, vague abdominal pain, fatigue. She has a 15-pound weight loss. Her blood work shows a normal white blood cell count. And a CT scan shows a bulky pancreas with an ill-defined nodule. Um, her pancreatic duct is not dilated. Her pancreatic duct is normal. So what do you guys want to do? Do you want to do a pancreatic colonectomy? Do you want to start some chemotherapy and then restage her later on? Do you want to measure her serum IgG4? Do you want to do an EUS with a fine needle aspirate of the lesion of the pancreatic? All right, guys, uh, second poll is out. Let me know okay. if uh, it's there for Power. everyone. All right, guys, 15 more seconds and we'll uh, stop the poll. EUS with FNA of the pancreatic. So I think the, the devil's in the details here because the D says EUS with FNA of the lesion of the pancreatic head. And had it said a core biopsy of the pancreatic head, the answer may have been different. But actually the answer here is measurement of an IgG4. And we'll talk a little bit of what that, like why that is. So this patient has autoimmune pancreatitis, essentially. Um, this is an autoimmune destruction of the pancreatic parenchyma, and it may mimic pancreatic adenocarcinoma radiologically and clinically. The symptoms vary. Uh, you can have jaundice, you can have pancreatitis, you can have pain, you can be asymptomatic, or you can just have progressive exocrine and endocrine dysfunction with weight loss, anorexia, and fatigue. And typically on imaging, you will find that there is a mass in the pancreas, but that is not very well defined. Uh, it is not atypical to have what's called a sausage-shaped pancreas, where the tail of the pancreas is just bulky and filled out, and you've lost that fat that is kind of inter integrated normally throughout the ducts. But typically, the pancreatic duct is not dilated. When you have pancreatic cancer, pancreatic cancer occludes the pancreatic duct, and you should have distal dilatation of the pancreatic duct. Uh, you don't have that with autoimmune pancreatitis, and that's one of the clues in this patient, in addition to the fact that the mass is described as being a little bit diffuse. And there's two types of biliary pancreatitis, of, uh, of autoimmune pancreatitis, essentially. There's type 1, which is... Uh, an antibody, an IgG-mediated uh, destruction of the pancreatic parenchyma. Uh, these patients have an elevated IgG4 level, and it can affect other organs as well that are that are within kind of the greater family of the biliary tree of the pancreas and the biliary tree. So, you can have uh, an IgG4 cholangitis that comes with that, or IgG4 hepatitis, as well as some impacts on the salivary glands. And the type two is sometimes called the duct-centric one, is recognized on biopsy and is not core-mediated. 
you can't really make that diagnosis on, on an FNA. You really need a core biopsy to show you the anatomy and the plasma cell infiltration. Uh, and then you can stay it for IgG4 as well to know if it's type 1 or type 2. The treatment is with steroids. Uh, and most people will resolve with steroids, although many patients will have a recurrence that can also be treated with steroids um, later on. And then you just basically give them a course of steroids, re-image them, and typically the, image, the imaging will normalize. Next question, 2.5 centimeter cystic mass in the tail of the pancreas has an EUS with a cyst fluid aspiration, which is the most consistent finding for a new synesthetic neoplasm or a mucinous neoplasm in general, I should say. Right, Paul is out for everyone. We have a few questions. Uh, we'll answer them later and take up time just for the lecture, guys. That's okay with you, Dr. Jan? Yeah, that's all right. Perfect. All right, guys, we'll close the poll in just a few seconds. Okay. You can proceed, Dr. Jan. Yeah, good job, everyone. So elevated CEA in the cyst fluid is what you would expect in a mucinous cyst. And uh, let's do another quick question. 67-year-old uh, man has a whip over main duct IPMN. We'll talk about what that means later. Um, you send some frozens. You get back the result. The pathologist says, oh, it's panin-3. I should say we actually don't call it panin-3 anymore. We call it just high-grade dysplasia. They say, you know, this high-grade dysplasia or panin-3. What do you want to do? Do you want to just do a total pancreatectomy, remove everything? Do you want to just do your anastomosis, whatever you chose, a PJ or PG, um, and then just follow the patient? Do you want to re-resect and then send another frozen margin? Or do you want to finish the job, just sew it up, do the PG or PJ, and then give them chemotherapy afterwards? Just a few seconds and we'll end the poll. Okay, results are out right now. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm disappointed you guys know. You, so, so the answer with high-grade dysplasia in the context of the main duct IPMN should be to we resect. We're going to have to revise that margin. Um, a total pancreatectomy is not unreasonable in very highly selective patients, and, and we can talk about that some more. 
So mucinocysts come in different flavors. There's the mucinocystic neoplasms and the IPMNs, and then the IPMNs themselves come in different subtypes, main duct, branch type, and, or branch duct, and mixed uh, main duct and branch type. The mucinocystic neoplasms do not communicate with the pancreatic duct, and they have an unknown but thought to be high risk of cancer, thought to be over 10, at least 10%, possibly even more, and the indication is for them to be resected. The IPMNs come on a wide spectrum of biological behavior from uh, a lifetime risk of malignancy of about 10% for most branch duct IPMNs to a lifetime malignancy risk of about 60% for main duct IPMNs. And that variation in the life history guides the surgical uh, treatment from surveillance for most branch duct IPMNs to uh, resections for main duct IPMNs. Mucinocystic neoplasms are defined by the presence of an ovarian-like stroma that's very often asked on exams, uh, and that is the pathognomotic finding of MCNs that distinguish them from other cystic entities. They do not communicate with the pancreatic duct, unlike the IPMNs, which do. They have a female predominance, and again, we think that the risk of cancer is certainly at least 10%, probably more, and resection is recommended. These patients typically present quite young, uh, in their 30s, 40s, 50s. A main duct IPMN is a diffuse dilatation of the main pancreatic duct without an obvious cause. And I think that's the main, uh, I think that's the main point here is that it's not you know, someone who has chronic pancreatitis, who has a stricture and who has a dilatation of the pancreatic duct. It's someone who has no other reason to have a dilatation of the pancreatic duct. The risk of malignancy is high. In the early Japanese series, it was 80% or more for the presence of malignancy defined as high-grade dysplasia or invasive cancer. The true number is probably a little bit lower, around 60%, and obviously lower for invasive cancer. So we say 60% of malignancy, including high-grade dysplasia and invasive cancer. Um, and then the surgery that you're going to design for these patients, because surgery is indicated for everyone with a main duct IPMN, depends on the location of the cyst. Um, and Certainly, if you have a localized cyst, the cyst is mostly in the head of the pancreas or mostly in the tail of the pancreas, the choice is easy. If you have a, if you have a cyst that is uh, diffuse, then it's a bit more of a clinical dilemma. Once you've made sure that there are no you know, enhancing nodules anywhere in that that would make you change your mind, the approach that most people would take is to do a Whipple, check the margin, send it for a frozen, and then extend that more and more and more uh, if you find high-grade dysplasia. The reason we don't do a distal is because if you do a distal and you find po a positive mar a margin of high-grade dysplasia, you can't keep taking more pancreas, right, if you're in the head of the pancreas already. The role of a total pancreatectomy is more controversial. It may be a reasonable option for highly uh, functional, young patients that are extremely healthcare literate that can essentially learn how to manage a very brittle diabetes, because that is essentially what you're committing this patient to, is a lifetime of a very brittle diabetes that is very difficult to control. And a significant number of patients will die from brittle diabetes, significant hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia in that context. So you're going to be very selective about who you offer a total pancreatectomy to. Mixed duct IPMN has both features of a branch duct IPMN and a main duct IPMN. You're going to manage them the way that you do a main duct IPMN, essentially. The risk of malignancy is driven by the main duct component. 
Let's talk a little bit about branched up IPMNs. You have a 69-year-old male with a 3.5 centimeter cyst in the pancreatic body uh, for a CT scan done for an unrelated reason. Um, the cyst has a thin septation and appears to be communicating with the main pancreatic duct. Um, oh, sorry, uh, the presentation was pancreatitis. Uh, that's why they had the CT scan. What is the best management for this patient? Do you do a dysopancreatectomy? Do you observe them? Do you do an endoscopic cyst gastrectomy? Or do you enucleate uh, that cyst? Another 20 seconds for the poll. Okay, we're gonna end the poll now. All right, most people wanna observe. Um, the answer is actually a distal pancreatectomy and we'll, we'll talk about why. Observation is not wrong, uh, but this patient has essentially two worrisome features now. They have a cyst that's over three centimeters and they have a presentation with acute pancreatitis. We'll go over what a worrisome feature is and what a high-risk feature is when we're dealing with uh, branched duct IPMNs. So in side branch IPMN or branched duct IPMNs, if you have a high-risk stigma, you're going to surgery right away. So that patient will come in with obstructive jaundice, an enhancing mural nodule of over five millimeters, a main pancreatic duct that is quite dilated over a centimeter. Then you have worrisome features, some of which are clinical and some of which are biochemical or radiological. An elevated CRMC99, a cyst of more than three centimeters, enhancing cyst walls or a enhancing nodule of less than five millimeters. Um, a duct that isn't quite a centimeter, but that is dilated five to nine millimeters and a cyst that is growing of five millimeters in more than two years. And these are issued um, in the revised Fukuoka guidelines, which are the guidelines that most surgeons are using and that should be using. There are other guidelines that are issued by gastroenterologists uh, that uh, we're not gonna get into it now, but have their own problems. So this really is a slide that should be imprinted in your minds as you prepare for your exams and in your future practice. If anyone has a higher stigmata, they go to surgery if they can have surgery. If they don't, then you ask yourself, do they have any worrisome features? And if they have any worrisome features, um, then you want to stage them somehow. So an endoscopic ultrasound. And then if the endoscopic ultrasound, um, uh, based on the findings of the ultrasound, you're surveying them at different kind of time intervals. But then the more worrisome factors you have, and the more that's going to start skewing you towards surgery. So it's not wrong to take someone with even with two worrisome factors to the operating room. And you'll note that it says that for young fit patients who have a cyst of more than three centimeters, it may be reasonable to simply consider uh, surgery as a way essentially of sparing them uh, 
what otherwise would be an MRI in the US alternating every three to six months for the rest of their life. Uh, and obviously that depends also on the location of the cyst. The Whipple and the basal pancreatectomy has a very different morbidity profile. So you're gonna be selecting your patients from that perspective. There's four subtypes of IPMN histologically. There's a gastric subtype, uh, an intestinal subtype, an oncocytic subtype, and a pancreaticobiliary one. The pancreaticobiliary one uh, leads to the, when it transforms, leads to the cancer with the most aggressive behavior. Um, and the oncocytic subtype is uh, the one that most commonly leads to a cancer. The gastric subtype is your kind of garden variety uh, IPMN, usually low grade and has a low risk of medical transformation. You won't usually know this before the OR, that's a final pathology. And when they do transform, I said usually there's the ones that have intestinal transformation with an intestinal subtype, and then there's the pancreatic biliary subtypes, which have uh, a worse prognosis. And again, you won't know this before you take this patient to the operating room. So the summary slide, uh, we talked a little bit about pseudocysts earlier on. Serocystic neoplasms and mucinocystic neoplasms are female predominant, IPMN are not. Uh, you can kind of see the variations of, uh, you know, cyst biochemical analysis uh, and how that helps you kind of navigate the differential diagnosis and the implications. Any questions before we move on to malignant entities? Okay, we have about 20 minutes left. Uh, so we'll be talking about malignant, malignant lesions of the pancreas for most of the rest of the time. We divide them into primary lesions and metastatic lesions. Primary lesions, you'd have adenocarcinomas, which arise from the SNI and the ductal, uh, the ductal systems. Neuroendocrine tumors, uh, solid pseudopapillary neoplasms, uh, and then in the metastatic realm, we'll be touching very briefly on some of the ones for which there is an indication for resection. Uh, voila, don't feel sick. A 32-year-old female who had a Whipple for a 12-centimeter tumor. The pathology re reveals a solid pseudopapillary tumor with negative surgical margins and negative lymph nodes. What should follow surgical resection in this patient? All right, Paul, Paul is out, Scott. Let's give 30 seconds. Those who uh, ask questions in the Q&A will ask those at the end. Okay, we're going to end the poll right now. Rate CT scan in a year. Good job. Okay, let's talk about spins a little bit. Um, they're also known as Franz tumor or Hamoudi tumors. Uh, it took me quite a while to figure out who Hamoudi was. I thought he must be a brother or something, but um, he's actually from Ohio. So uh, he's not from the Arab world. He's a, and he's not a surgeon. He's a, uh, from what I could gather, like a pediatric pathologist. Um, they're rare pancreatic neoplasms. Uh, typically asymptomatic, um, but they do have a malignant and metastatic potential. They have to be treated as such. 
they are pseudo-papillary because they don't contain real papillae. The papillae are, are essentially fronds of, uh, of necrotic tissue within the tumor. They present in young women, usually, uh, age 27, and they can appear cystic on imaging, as I said, because of that necrotic uh, central core that gives these pseudo-papillae. Um, and typical appearance, as you see on the CT scan, has the four Cs. They're circumscribed, they're cystic appearing, they're not real cysts, they're not a pseudocyst, but they're not real cysts. They have a firm capsule and they can have internal calcifications as well. And the indication uh, for an SPN, the treatment is a surgical resection. Um, even with an R0 resection, there's a high rate of, relatively high rate of recurrence, uh, both locally and metastatically. But even in the metastatic setting, uh, the indication is that we should be fairly aggressive pursuing even met metastatic disease uh, in these patients. In patients that are A, unresectable for a variety of reasons, then there are some systemic options that are not curative, but that are palliative. Let's talk a little bit about pancreatic lymphoma. This is something that you'll see every now and then. It's a rare entity, uh, but it's something that you'll suspect when you have a bulky lesion with a really dramatic amount of local lymphadenopathy, but without some of the hallmarks of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, such as jaundice or pancreatic ductal dilatation. And there really your role as a surgeon is going to be diagnosis and then referring this patient on. You usually need a core biopsy to establish the diagnosis because you need some cytoarchitecture. Okay, 55-year-old male has hypoglycemia as a presenting symptom. He has 1.5-centimeter insulinoma in the head of the pancreas. And uh, on the MRI, he has a single lesion in the liver in segment 3, consistent with the metastases. So he has a metastatic insulinoma. What do you do? Do you enucleate the pancreatic lesion? Do you, do, uh, do you just treat him symptomatically with octreotide and acarbose? Do you do Whipple and a liver resection? Or do you just core out both of them? You core out the pancreas and you core out the liver region. I will give you 20 to 30 seconds, guys. Okay, we're going to end the poll right now. Hopefully, the results will come out now. We put a delivery section. Good job. We'll talk a little bit about pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, these are a very heterogeneous group of tumors that come in a wide spectrum of biological behavior and malignant behavior. Um, they do have the potential to secrete uh, hormone, either hormones or hormonally active substances. An insulinoma makes insulin, the gastrinoma makes gastrin, uh, glucagonoma makes glucagon, etc., etc. Um, and they secrete a variety of other ones, even the ones that are not insulinomas, gastrinomas, or glucagonomas can secrete a pancreatic polypeptide, chromogranin A, ghrelin, calcitonin, etc. 
they are rare, and most of the pancreatic neoplasms that you'll see in your career are pancreatic adenocarcinomas. Um, as you said, they can be functional or non-functional. Most of them are non-functional. Um, they either do not produce any hormones or only produce them at lower levels, such that the patient is uh, asymptomatic from that perspective. The incidence is increasing, probably related to uh, increasing cross-sectional imaging. Um, insulinomas and gastrinomas are the most common. Um, and insulinomas are typically benign ones. The, the incidence of a malignant insulinoma is low. It's less than 10%. It's quite rare. I mean, there is one in that scenario to kind of throw you off, but, but that's, essentially, uh, that's essentially right. Gastrinomas are much more likely to be malignant. Uh, so are glucagonomas. Glucagonomas tend to be associated with a very specific uh, idiosyncratic rash that's called uh, necrolytic migratory uh, erythema migrans or necrolytic migratory erythema. Um, VIPoma and, somatost uh, and somatostatinoma are characterized by profuse water diarrhea with electrolyte abnormalities. Chromogranin A is, is a biochemical marker, but we don't use it uh, as a diagnostic tool or as a screening tool. Um, it can be used to uh, track essentially uh, response to treatment. Um, you can get a CT scan, but it's important that if you do, that it's in the arterial phase because these are arterially enhancing tumors and you can easily miss them on a photogenous phase. Uh, MRI may be a bit more sensitive in terms of the resolution, but certainly the uh, most sensitive test for neuroendocrine tumors is a gallium dotatate. The advantage of the gallium dotatate is that it also gives you uh, information regarding the somatostatin receptor status of the specific tumor, potentially opening up uh, treatment avenues uh, for targeted therapy regarding PRRT uh, later on. There's really no role for a PET scan, uh, except for the most de-differentiated tumor, uh, which are not really neuroendocrine tumors, they're really neuroendocrine uh, uh, carcinomas, essentially, or neuroendocrine, uh, uh, very poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas, NECs, not NECs. There's a WHO classification that uses the KICT7 as the chief uh, predictor of biological behavior. When a tumor has a low k 67 and a low size, so you have a tumor that is less than one centimeter with a k 67 less than 2%, the risk of uh, lymph node positivity in a tumor like that is quite low. It's not zero, but it's about 5%. You have a tumor that's over two centimeters, especially if the k 67 starts to rise, then uh, the incidence of lymph node metastasis starts to rise and it's, it's 15% and more. And that's where we start intervening on these tumors. So we tend not to intervene on small tumors with low KSC7 indexes that are well differentiated. We do tend to intervene on larger tumors that have higher KSC7s. A 37-year-old man with a history of hyperparathyroidism presents with abdominal pain. He gets a CT scan that shows three hyperenhancing lesions in the pancreas. What should be his management? They are all under two centimeters, essentially.
10 more seconds, guys. And we'll end the poll now. Oh, total pancreatectomy. But guys, we just said the total pancreatectomies are like a very morbid thing and you want to try not to do it. And, but no, the answer is actually that you're just going to uh, watch it. It's not C, sorry. You're just going to watch this patient. Uh, MRI pancreas in three months. This patient has a multifocal uh, process. Uh, if you just remove the largest lesions, you're still going to watch the rest. And as we said, when they're all under two centimeters, um, especially if you have a good idea that these are low, um, uh, well-differentiated tumors, you're just going to watch them. Surgery is the only curative treatment for neuroendocrine tumors. Um, but the flip side of that is that very few patients are actually cured by surgery, especially if they already have metastatic disease and if they're not positive. Um, in order for you to do a formal resection of a neuroendocrine tumor, you need to perform a lymphadenectomy. If you're removing it, you're presumably removing it because you're concerned about its malignant potential and you need to get the lymph nodes out. So indications for enucleations has really dropped. In order for you to be able to enucleate a lesion, it has to be away from the pancreatic duct, which typically means that it's going to be in the tail and very exophytic. If you have one in the head, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to just core it out unless you knew with good certainty that it's away from the pancreatic duct. And it has to be small. But the flip side of that is, well, why are you removing it in the first place? Um, if, you, if you're removing it, it's because you're concerned about it. And if you're concerned about it, you should get the lymph nodes and do a formal resection. If you are not concerned about it, then you should be simply surveilling it and therefore enucleating it simply exposes the patient to a risk of pancreatic fistula without any of the oncological benefits. You're still going to be surveilling this patient anyways. So enucleation is quite controversial um, and limited to you know, small insulinomas and uh, hormonally active neuroendocrine tumors uh, that are away from the duct. Voila. So, and you should consider observation for incidental, small, well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors. You have neuroendocrine tumors that are under two centimeters. Certainly, if they're under one centimeter, uh, you can watch them without a biopsy. Between one and two centimeters, most of us would get a biopsy of them to make sure that they're not poorly differentiated or uh, have a high KS7 before we commit them to a course of uh, clinical observation. Uh, because again, the likelihood of them being malignant is pretty low. Um, well, that's about it for neuroendocrine tumors, and we can address that more if you have any questions about that later on. Um, keep in mind that that's different from neuroendocrine carcinomas, uh, which are poorly differentiated tumors that you should really think of as small cell tumors, kind of like small cell tumors of the lung. They have a very poor prognosis. Surgery is not first line for them. They should just get systemic chemotherapy. That's how you manage patients with neuroendocrine carcinomas. There are some targeted therapies for patients who are not surgically resectable. These include somatostatin analogs, which do uh, slow progression uh, and prolonged progression-free survival on multiple randomized trials. So these patients, if they have 
widely metastatic disease that is not resectable. They are usually on long-acting uh, octreotide analogs. Conventional chemotherapy using uh, everolimus or uh, temozolamide is also going to be considered uh, for specific patients, specifically based on their differentiation. Um, there are also targeted therapies that use uh, mutation uh, that is created with an octreotide uh, analog to essentially uh, target the tumors with radiotherapy. And there, there is a much higher response rate than just with systemic therapy with octreotide analogs. This was demonstrated in another one study. And that is one of the benefits of having a dotatate scan, if you can demonstrate that the patients are somatostatin receptor positive, they have widely metastatic disease, they will benefit from, uh, from PRRT. Uh, well, so some patients will end up getting streptozosin or temozolamide uh, based on the specific situation. Okay, let's move on and talk about pancreas cancer proper. Uh, what's the strongest risk factor for pancreas cancers? Smoking, age, chronic pancreatitis, family history, or asbestos? I will only give 10 seconds for this question. Is the poll out, guys, for yeah. everyone? Yeah, perfect. All right, five seconds and we'll end it. And over. Yeah, so it's age. So when you consider that chronic pancreatitis is a rare diagnosis in the general population, but that pancreas cancer is still a relatively common cancer, age uh, rises to the fore. In terms of uh, environmental exposure, smoking is a known risk factor, but most patients with pancreas cancer you'll find are non-smokers. Um, which of the following is correct? is incorrect regarding pancreas cancer. Majority of patients have unresectable disease. The most frequent presentation is famous jaundice. Um, involvement of the SMV is a poor prognostic marker. Median age of diagnosis, six to seven decades, and survival two years beyond diagnosis is rare. Ten more seconds. And we'll end it now. So this is asking what is incorrect. Uh, and it is actually incorrect that the uh, SMV involvement is a negative prognostic marker. Uh, it is very much correct that survival beyond two years is rare. Very few patients with pancreas cancer survive beyond two years. It's the fourth leading cause of cancer death. Most common presentation is jaundice. And the five-year survival is dismal at 8% for all comers for a variety of reasons which we'll explore. 
that's a question that is often asked on exams and uh, we don't have to bring up the poll. We'll just kind of go through it. The hereditary condition that has the highest risk of developing pancreatic carcinoma is Peutz-Jaeger's. Uh, all of the other ones do have an increased association, uh, including PRSS1, which is uh, predisposed due to chronic pancreatitis, BRCA2, which predisposed due to pancreas cancer along with breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and hereditary non-polyposis, uh, which also has a, uh, an increased risk of pancreatitis. But the one that uh, really has the highest risk is Peutz-Jaeger's. It increases your odds of developing uh, pancreas cancer by 100 um, let's talk a little bit about resectability for pancreas cancer. Um, the definition of borderline resectability used to be pretty much in the eye of the beholder. Some surgeons would look at a scan and say, oh, I can do this. And others would say, I don't think we should do this. Um, there have been multiple, sometimes competing definitions of what a borderline resectable cancer is. Really the definition that you should know the one that is used in most clinical trials right now and that has emerged at the fore and to which all the other definitions have converged is the intergroup trial definition, which basically says that if there is any contact with the SMA of less than 180 degrees, that patient is borderline resectable, um, meaning that if they have interface of more than 180 degrees, they're locally advanced and unresectable. If they have uh, interface with the celiac artery as well of less than 180 degrees, they are resectable. More than 180 degrees, they are borderline resectable. Um, you can reconstruct short segments of the common hepatic artery, and that's still borderline resectable, not unresectable. And for the purposes of the SMV and the PV, it almost doesn't matter exactly uh, how much of it is involved, even if it's 100, more than 180 degrees. If it is a reconstructable defect in the vein, then that is uh, considered. Uh, borderline receptable. So you have an 82-year-old man coming into the emergency room with painless jaundice. They're otherwise healthy. Their ultrasound demonstrates a dilated common bile duct and a uh, two-centimeter mass in the pancreatic head. Uh, what is the next step in management? Should you get an ERCP, brush their duct, and put a stent, a PTBD to decompress their, their their bile ducts, should they just go ahead and get a Whipple? Should they get a CT scan first? Should they get some palliative chemotherapy? Two 15 seconds. <laughs> We'll end the poll now. All right, so we have a split. Half of people want to get a CT first and half people want to uh, get an ERCP first. And the answer is a CT scan. Uh, you want to stage this person fully, but you also want to stage them before you do the CT scan and put a stent there and disrupt the local anatomy. It is much easier to appreciate um, arterial involvement and local anatomical involvement before the CT, before an ERCP, before you have a metal stent there and some of the artifact that comes with that. And complicating things even more, uh, if that patient develops pancreatitis from your ERCP, 
then you won't know what changes and you do the CT scan after, you won't really know what's what, what's cancer and what's inflammation. So you want to stage them first, get the ERCP after. There's no urgency for the ERCP, right? Patients that come in with obstructive jaundice from a malignancy are not cholangitic. They, they don't have cholangitis. There's no urgency to get the CT scan, to, to get the ERCP. Get your CT scan, stage them, and then you can get the ERCP and the stent later. Uh, we won't need to bring up the poll necessarily, but essentially that's to bring, drive home the point that the C99 is not a diagnostic test. It is not a screening test. Uh, it is a test that helps you uh, define response to treatment and gives you an early signal perhaps for early recurrence um, in the future uh, as you're surveilling this patient after their surgery. So surveillance for recurrence post-surgical resection is where you're going to use that C99 essentially. C99 is the tumor marker for pancreas cancer. It's not recommended for screening. Um, it is not very specific. A bunch of other things will give you an elevation in your C99, including obstructive jaundice or any manipulation of your biliary tree. These patients with pancreas cancer needs to be staged, and the staging modality is a CT scan. Um, uh, you got to get the CT scan in your pancreas protocol. So you need an arterial phase to define arterial involvement, uh, a portovenous phase, uh, and then a delayed phase as well. Um, PET scan, does not have, there's no role for a routine PET scan. You can get a PET scan to elucidate specific lesions where you're not sure if there are these metastases or not. And then endoscopic ultrasound is extremely useful. Uh, it allows you to get a biopsy uh, in a way that isn't too invasive and certainly less morbid than a percutaneous biopsy. And both the FNA, FNAs are pretty sensitive, but a core biopsy is even more, uh, more sensitive for picking up uh, pancreas cancer. The role of preoperative biliary drainage is a bit controversial. There's no benefit for routine preoperative uh, drainage. So it's not everyone who has a pancreas head cancer that is jaundice, that is awaiting a Whipple that needs a biliary stent. Uh, the minute that you put a stent in, you've now colonized your biliary tree, and there's a thought that that increases septic complications and wound infections in the postoperative period. This was demonstrated in a randomized trial that's not definitive word on that. There's lots of problems with that randomized trial. It included patients that were the least likely to benefit from, uh, from stenting uh, because it didn't include any patients that were very, very jaundiced. Um, but the thought right now is that you don't have to stent everyone. If you're able to take this patient to the operating room pretty rapidly and they're not terribly jaundiced, so their bilirubin is less than 250, um, uh, in our units, I'm not sure what that corresponds to in your units. I think you have to divide them by 1.9. Um, essentially, you can take that patient to the operating room. If you're not terribly jaundiced, you can get to the OR pretty quickly. You don't have to send them pre-op. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about diagnostic laparoscopies. In which of the following scenario is a diagnostic laparoscopy the most appropriate? A 2.5 centimeter mass in the tail of the pancreas and no distant metastases on CT. A patient with a four centimeter solid mass in the head, which encases the celiac axis. Uh, 2.3 centimeter mass in the pancreatic head with abutment of the SMV and metastases, and no metastases. And a patient with a uh, mass in the pancreatic body 
and they have a situs. Where is a laparoscopic a diagnostic laparoscopy the most indicated? All right, guys, we'll give 20 seconds. Okay, we're going to end the poll now. Yeah. So that patient with abutment of the SMV and nodicin metastases is going to, is probably going to get chemotherapy up front. Uh, they have a borderline resectable cancer. They're probably going to get chemotherapy up front. Um, for B, in case of the celiac axis, that patient is not going to be operated on anyways. So they're just going to get chemotherapy. Patient with the ascites, you can just tap the ascites, and, and usually that's demonstrating to you that that patient has peritoneal carcinomatosis, so you don't need a diagnostic laparoscopy there. And the patient with the pancreatic tail mass, um, that's the one that probably benefits the most from the diagnostic laparoscopy. You can certainly do that at the time of your surgery or do it separately. The diagnostic laparoscopy saves you a large incision uh, if a metastatic disease is found. Um, historically, people used to just do an operative bypass anyways, and so they would just start open. But now that we're not bypassing people surgically quite as much because the RCPs are quite good uh, and you can stent the duodenum, um, then there's certainly an incentive to avoid a large laparotomy that would delay them from getting uh, chemotherapy. Uh, so on the large meta-analysis, uh, you avoid about 23% of the non-therapeutic laparotomies just over getting a CT scan. Um, let's talk a little bit about neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Potential advantages are higher likelihood of completing chemotherapy pre-op versus post-op. And that's because after a Whipple, there's all the digestive issues, you're still recovering from surgery, you're now expected to get more chemotherapy and the ability to complete the cycles is compromised post-operatively versus pre-operatively. It offers a test of disease biology. But more importantly for us as surgeons, it really gives us a higher likelihood of achieving an R0 margin, uh, which is really the only modifiable risk, fact, risk uh, factor from the perspective of the surgeon. Uh, the disadvantage is that it may delay uh, surgery, uh, perhaps to the point where the patient would have progressed on chemotherapy, we may have missed a, missed a small window of opportunity. And that's a bit controversial is that if that's really a disadvantage or just demonstrating to you that there is a patient that would not have benefited from surgery because they would have progressed anyways. Um, there's also a certain deterioration in their functional status. So some patients will have such a, tox such a severe toxicity from chemotherapy that they may stop being uh, candidates for surgery just in terms of decompensating their functional status. Question 15, the incidence of pancreatic leak following pancreatic denectomy is the highest for which of the following indications? All right, we'll give 15 seconds to 20 seconds for this question. All 
All right, we'll end the poll now. Um, so this is asking where the incidence of an asthmatic leak is the highest, not the lowest. And it's actually the highest for duodenal cancer. So for anything that is not a pancreatic pathology, and we'll explore that uh, a little bit more. Um, and we don't need to bring that up as a question, but essentially that's the converse. What 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 indication or what factor decreases the risk of a pancreatic leak? And that's a, a history of chronic pancreatitis. And we'll talk about that in a bit more detail. Pancreatic fistula is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality after pancreatic duodenectomy, and there's no single technique of pancreatic enteric reconstruction that has been found to be superior in terms of the incidence or the severity of pancreatic fistula. So whether you do a pancreatic gastrostomy or a pancreatic digitostomy has never really been shown to be beneficial one way or another. People have investigated the role of stenting the pancreatic duct, and there's really no role for stenting the pancreatic duct unless you're going to actually steriorize that duct. Essentially, you're committing that patient to a, a cutaneous pancreatic fistula, a controlled one, but a fistula nonetheless. And uh, obturiotide itself does not prevent the pancreatic, pancreatic fistulas. There's some evidence that pasireotide in a single, single institution randomized trial uh, did decrease the incidence of clinically relevant pancreatic fistula, but that, that does not never been replicated in other institutions. A fistula risk score is a good idea of you to, uh, for you to try and understand what the risk of your patient developing a pancreatic fistula is. The firmer the gland and the better it will take your sutures and the lower the likelihood that it's gonna leak. And you typically have a firm gland when you have a pancreatic cancer or chronic pancreatitis as an indication and so uh, conversely, an indication for the Whipple of pancreatic adenocarcinoma or pancreatitis gives you the lowest risk of a leak. These patients tend not to leak from their pancreas because they have a very atrophic, scarred pancreas with a large duct that anastomosis is pretty solid. Whereas if you're operating for another cause, they have a duodenal cancer, but their pancreas is actually completely normal, or they have an ampullary cancer, um, or they have a neuroendocrine tumor, their pancreas is completely normal. Uh, the pancreatic duct is very small, the pancreatic texture is very soft, and that patient is gonna leak. Uh, pancreatic duct diameter is also a corollary of that. The bigger the duct, the less they leak, the smaller the duct, and the more likely they are to have a fistula and intraoperative blood loss. So you calculate these in what's called the fistula risk score, uh, that is probably the most used, commonly used uh, predictive score to, uh, to predict the incidence of pancreatic fistula. Um, the definition of pancreatic fistula in terms of clinical severity has changed. It's just been revised in 2016. And essentially, we divide them into uh, clinically irrelevant pancreatic fistula. So just having uh, amylase-rich fluid coming out of the drain does not mean that there's a clinically relevant fistula. And then there's grade B and C fistulas uh, where the, the fistula is uh, engendering a change in the clinical management, whether that's by uh, placing or repositioning drains by IR, reoperating on the patient, organ injury, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whether uh, the surgical bed should be routinely drained or not has been a little bit controversial, more so for the disopancreatectomies than for the Whipples. Uh, in 2014, there was a randomized trial that attempted not to place drains in a Whipple, and the 
study had to be stopped early due to increased morbidity and mortality in the arm that was not drained. And so there's probably evidence, most of us think this is evidence of harm um, when you withhold drain placement in a Whipple. That being said, is it possible that it is safe in some subpopulations, perhaps populations that have a really low calculated fistula risk score? We simply don't know, but I would say that the practice for most pancreatic surgeons is to universally place a drain after a Whipple. For a distal pancreatectomy, you could omit the drain. There is a randomized trial that suggests that drainage actually increases fistula rate, probably by demonstrating to you uh, the incidence of many uh, fistulas that would have been otherwise clinically irrelevant. Um, the way that we manage these drains is by these fistulas is by draining them. Uh, if they've not been drained preoperatively, or if the drain is not doing a good enough job, then you may want to reposition another drain by interventional radiology. Reoperation is a last resort for these patients. And even when you're reoperating, you're typically there to place drains. You're not going to revise that anastomosis. You're not going to do anything fancy like that. Uh, reoperating on these patients is extremely morbid and has a very high mortality. So we, it's excessively rare that we have to reoperate on a Whipple from the perspective of uh, pancreatic fistula. And whenever we do, it's typically only to open, wash out, put drains, and close, if IR could not place the drains on your behalf. Surgery, we were asked, I was asked to give a little thing about different kinds of surgery for pancreas cancer. Essentially, when it comes to pancreas cancer surgery, location uh, tells you what you're gonna need to do. Location with regards to the vessels, location with regards to where it is in the gland, uh, dictates what kind of surgery they're going to So you have a tumor in the head that is away from the portal vein, the SMA, the celiac axis. Uh, you're going to do a Whipple. The Whipple, you all know now, is resection of the head of the pancreas, so you love the SND and portal vein, the distal bile duct, the gallbladder, the duodenum, the proximal ventrinum. And you can resect that with or without the pylorus. It does not really matter in terms of the outcomes. There was a belief at some point that pylorus preservation decreases the incidence of uh, gastric uh, gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying. It does not. Uh, its opponents say that it increases it. It doesn't increase it either. It's an exercise in style, really. Um, if the tumor is on the portal vein, then you can do a Whipple with a portal vein resection. Uh, either a primary reconstruction or with a conduit. We won't get into too much details there. If the tumor is uh, a bit more further out in the neck of the pancreas, then you can do a Whipple at the level of the splenic artery. So a Whipple where the transection line is not just over the portal vein, but is a bit more distal to that. If the tumor is in the body of the pancreas involving the splenic artery or the celiac axis, you could consider doing a distal pancreatectomy with a celiac axis reconstruction, uh, but we won't get into the details of how to decide whether that's okay to do or not. That's kind of fellowship level discussions. If it's in the tail of the pancreas, you're gonna do a distal pancreatectomy, and if it's an adenocarcinoma, you're gonna consider doing a, a RAMS, where essentially you are removing uh, the perirenal fascia, the anterior renal fascia, so the gerota, uh, possibly removing the adrenal as well, to make sure that you're clearing your margin posteriorly on the retroperitoneum. Um, the role of arterial resections for borderline resectable pancreas cancer is very controversial. 
even though removing the vein has no, removing and reconstruction of the vein has minimal impact on morbidity, uh, arterial reconstruction has a significant impact on morbidity um, in terms of hemorrhagic complications because now you have an arterial reconstruction next to a leaking gland that's secreting pancreatic enzymes on it. A lot of these patients will succumb to a pancreatic pseudoaneurysm. Um, and we talked a little bit about pancreatic pseudoaneurysm when we were talking about uh, acute pancreatitis and the sequelae of acute pancreatitis, but you can certainly have those as well uh, in the postoperative period after a Whipple. And the typical scenario there is you have a patient who has a pancreatic fistula, you know, maybe they're day 14 or day 18, um, and they suddenly have a little bit of blood in the drain. And maybe you get a call, the nurse calls you and says, oh, there's a little bit of blood in the drain. You say, oh, it's fine. It's probably nothing. And it's probably not nothing. Uh, that's your one chance of saving that patient's life by essentially rushing them to the IR suite and embolizing usually what is their gastroduodenal artery stump that is, uh, that is usually bleeding. And that's a common exam question. Um, there are also severe functional consequences of disrupting the synthetic and the, the parasympathetic plexus that surround the SMA. These patients get a lot of gastrointestinal issues with chronic diarrhea and the quality of life is very poor. Um, these resections, whenever they're entertained, the arterial reconstructions, resections and reconstructions for pancreatic adenocarcinoma should always be considered in the context of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, right? This is a patient who's had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, who's been stable or improving. Um, uh, you're never just gonna upfront do an SMA resection or upfront do a, you know, a common hepatic artery resection. Right now, as we saw in the intergroup uh, definition, resections of short segments of the common hepatic artery are considered borderline resectable, not unresectable, although they do increase the morbidity, of course. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit what happens after the Whipple or after you know, whatever surgery they've had, as we said. Um, so that patient has had their surgery, they've recovered uneventfully, what should happen next? They should get 5-FU chemoradiation, 5-FU leucovorin, oxaliplatin, 5-FU leucovorin, oxaliplatin, arinotecan, or gemcitabine and radiation. My poll is out, we'll just give a few seconds for the answers. Okay, we'll end the poll now. Okay, so you guys want to give Folfox essentially. Um, and the answer is actually Porphyrinox, not Folfox, or I should say modified Porphyrinox. So um, there's no impact of radiation. Uh, so there's no routine role for. Uh, adjuvant radiation in pancreas cancer. There may be a select role in selected patients, but overwhelmingly there is no role for radiation adjuvantly universally for pancreas cancer. Uh, so for all incomers, there are specific circumstances where you may consider it. But we know that chemotherapy improves survival. We know this from multiple, multiple trials. The question is what chemotherapy is best? And historically, uh, 
these chemotherapies used to be gemcitabine based. So if I had asked that same question, you know, five or six or seven years ago, the answer may have been gemcitabine, single agent gemcitabine. T today, the answer is not gemcitabine, it's porphyrinox. We know this from the Prodige trial. Porphyrinox in the adjuvant setting improves survival over gemcitabine alone. Whether it improves gemcitabine, whether it improves survival over gemcitabine with capecitabine or with gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel um, is not known. Uh, we have some idea from SPAC5, which has just been released. Um, and we have some idea from the SWOG1505 trial. Both of these were presented at ASCO GI uh, just last month. And it doesn't seem like there's a major difference. There's probably a bit more toxicity with porphyrinox. Uh, but the standard right now is porphyrinox, whether that's for neoadjuvant chemotherapy or adjuvant chemotherapy uh, or for metastatic uh, pancreas cancer. The standard is porphyrinox. That being said, porphyrinox is a very difficult regimen to tolerate. And if you don't have the kind of functional status that allows you to get porphyrinox, you typically will get a gemcitabine-based um, regimen. So you have a patient with a large pancreas cancer that is locally advanced. It's encasing these SMA and celiac axis. What is going to be their treatment for this locally advanced, unresectable pancreas cancer? Ten more seconds, guys. Okay, we'll end the poll now. Okay, so as I said, it's for, going to be for Fearnox. For the uh, new adjuvant setting, for the adjuvant setting, for the palliative setting, um, it's going to be for Fearnox. It's going to have superiority. They're telling me that this, this gentleman is 45 years old, so it sounds like they should be able to tolerate for Fearnox. Um, yeah. So the answer is for Fearnox, for Fearnox, for Fearnox, for the neoadjuvant, for the adjuvant, for the metastatic, if that patient is able to tolerate that. If they're not able to tolerate for Fearnox, then you're looking at usually a gem-based chemotherapeutic regimen. That's either gem, gem alone, gemabraxane, uh, or gemsis. Or gem, uh, gem okay. 64-year-old female had a left nephrectomy seven years ago for an RCC, and now she has a two-centimeter hyper-enhancing lesion in the pancreatic head. What is the next best step? She should get sunitinib. She should get an EUS and biopsy. She should get an enucleation, or she should get a pancreatic oligonectomy. All right, we'll give... 20 more seconds.
Okay, we'll end the poll now. I will say EUS and biopsies is not unreasonable, but what this uh, scenario is trying to tell you is that she has a, a renal cell carcinoma metastases. The way that you know that that's that is uh, because it's hyper-enhancing. So pancreatic adenocarcinoma is hypo-enhancing. It's a very hypovascular tumor. It's essentially one big scar with a lot of dysmoplastic reaction. And the only hypervascular lesions you're going to find in the head of the pancreas or in the pancreas is going to be a neuroendocrine tumor uh, or in this patient, a renal cell carcinoma. US biopsy is not wrong. You could certainly get an US biopsy, and you should, probably should before you go ahead to, to getting a Whipple. So there are some metastatic lesions to the pancreas. They are rare, um, typically hyper-enhancing as opposed to the hypo-enhancing masses of adenocarcinoma of the pancreas. And renal cell carcinoma is the most common, it has a specific affinity to the pancreas. There are some situations where you would consider resecting these patients, typically patients who have a long disease-free interval and then a delayed recurrence, um, and patients who've been stable on uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, such as sunitinib. There are other um, cancers that metastasize to the pancreas, lung cancers, specifically lobular breast cancer has a particular, particular affinity for the pancreas and melanoma. Um, that's about it for today. So perhaps we can do some questions now. You guys have questions. Okay, well, um, there's a couple of questions in the q and I'll just uh, um, say them out loud and we can answer them. Um, we'll go from the uh, latest question. Diabetes type two is considered as a risk factor for pancreatic cancer? Is it considered as a risk factor? No, uh, not in, at least not in the sense that it is causative. But what often happens is that you often have a diagnosis of type two diabetes that, that precedes the diagnosis of pancreas cancer because they, uh, you get occlusion of the pancreatic duct, you get atrophy of the, pan of the pancreatic parenchyma, you become a diabetic, and so it's not uncommon for patients diagnosed with pancreas cancer to have had a recent diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So it's not that type 2 diabetes caused their pancreas, their pancreas cancer. It's that they became diabetic after their pancreas cancer caused atrophy of most of their, uh, their islet cells. Okay. Um, the next question is, when to do an endoscopic drainage for pancreatic pseudocyst? and one percutaneous or surgical drainage? Yeah, so I mean, ideally you would drain them endoscopically if you have good apposition with the stomach and they're technically feasible. Um, yeah. Okay, and the next question, why is cystic neoplasms asymptomatic or are cystic neoplasms asymptomatic? So I should say most cystic neoplasms are asymptomatic. Some cystic neoplasms can present with pancreatitis, specifically, yeah. uh, the IPMNs, right? And the IPMNs will eventually like, clog up the pancreatic duct with, um, with mucus, and you can develop an episode of pancreatitis. And if you do, again, remember thinking back to the Fukuoka guidelines, a clinical episode of pancreatitis in the presence of a pancreatic cyst is a worrisome feature because uh, it indicates that, you're that that cyst is progressing somehow. And the next question is, 
what is the indication for pancreatectomy? I think we answered that question, right? For missing assists, you mean? No, just the, it's a broad question. What is the indication of pancreatectomy? We can go back and look at it later on. We'll upload the lecture. Yeah, I don't really understand that question. Um, the next question, will, will not enteral feeds produce more enzyme and hence damage the pancreas further? Yeah, so that's a theoretical, uh, that's, a theor that's what you would think theoretically, and that's what people used to believe. I think the problem is that very often we have an idea in our minds of how things work, and the reality is much more complicated than that. Um, what is clear from high-level randomized evidence is that enteric feeding in pancreatitis improves outcomes over... Um, over fasting a patient, keeping a patient completely fasted and just giving them TPN. And the way that it does so is by preventing infectious complications. So when you don't feed the gut, the gut gets most of its uh, nutritional supply directly from, uh, from the lumen, uh, specifically the enterocytes. And if you don't feed the enterocytes, they start losing a lot of the tight junctions. You get what's called a leaky bowel. You may have heard that in kind of the alternative literature. It's a very popular concept in kind of new age alternative health circles, but, but it is also like a real thing that we deal with in the ICU all the time, leaky gut. And when you get leaky gut, you get bacterial trans translocation. And you get bacterial translocation, you have this red limitis of, uh, that can be readily colonized. We have a big pancreatic necrosin that's just sitting there. It's not infected yet. You get bacterial translocation, you infect that necrosin, you get an increase in infectious complications. Uh, that's how we think that that works. And that's why we think that feeding the gut is better. Um, in a way, you have to think of the pancreatitis as already having happened. Um, the insult is a kind of time-limited thing. Inflammatory insult is a time-limited thing. And then what you're dealing with, you know, three weeks down the, down the road, you're, no, you're really no longer dealing with ongoing acute pancreatitis most of the time. Most of the time, you're dealing with sequelae of pancreatitis. You're dealing with Acute, acute ne ne necrotic collections that are going to become Waldorf necrosis, or an acute peripancreatic fluid collection that is going to become a pseudocyst. Um, yeah. Um, the next question Can chronic pancreatitis lead to hemorrhagic pancreatitis? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I, not in the way that I've seen, no. You can have uh, thromboses uh, with chronic pancreatitis. So you can have uh, you know, disease, yeah. yeah. I think mainly with acute, acute pancreatitis, we see yeah. hemorrhagic. Yeah, so pseudoaneurysms and hemosuccus and uh, you know, all of these kind of arterial hemorrhagic complications are typically happening with uh, acute pancreatitis. When you, when you read the old textbooks, they would say there's some physical signs of acute pancreatitis or things like the the gray sign and the fox colon sign, which are signs of like retroperitoneal hemorrhagic pancreatitis. I mean, usually if you're having that, you're having like retropancreatic hemorrhage, that patient is very much in extremis. That patient is unwell, right? Yeah. And the next question, can acute pancreatitis complicate to chronic after treatment or it, yeah. it has own causes? Okay, so yeah. So again, I, again, there's a, always a lot of confusion there with both from the patient's side and from the trainee's side. You can have acute, acute pancreatitis 
and then be dealing with the chronic sequelae of, of that. For example, you have acute pancreatitis and then you get necrosis of the neck of the pancreas. You have now have a disconnected duct in the tail. You, the tail is still alive, the head is still alive, the neck is dead, and you have a big necrosis in between them. And you know, you're dealing with this for months and weeks and you know, a drain and excess gastrostomy and the blocks and, and you guys all taking care of these patients. So that patient does not have chronic pancreatitis. They're just dealing with sequelae, long-term sequelae of an episode of acute pancreatitis that has disrupted your diet. Okay. Um, do all anatomic anomalies need intervention or only symptomatic cases? Yeah, almost none of them do. It is extremely rare to have to operate on someone with, for example, a pancreas division. Again, 10% of the people on this call have a pancreas division. And, uh, you know, I'll bet you that almost none of you have pancreatitis from your division. Even when you find a patient that has pancreatitis and a division, it is usually caused by something else, commonly alcohol and gallstones and the myriad other things that are causing that. Uh, it's excessively rare to have to operate on, on that for division. Even there, the way that you would typically manage someone who has uh, pancreas division, where you think that the pancreatitis is caused by pancreas division, is by an endoscopic sphincterotomy. And that's how we do it in 2020. We're not going to operate on this patient. We have one last question from our resident. Uh, he's asking Is core biopsy a must for pancreatic lymphoma prior to treatment with chemotherapy? Yes. Yes. Yes, they're not going to give them chemotherapy just, uh, just, on, just on a whim. Yeah, typically you have to, con you have, that hematologist want, wants to be convinced that there is uh, a lymphoma there. That's to characterize the lymphoma. Perfect. I think, uh, sorry guys if I missed any questions, but I think that's the end of the session, Dr. Jad, thank you so much. It's been a very informative lecture. Um, we've had some good reviews here. Um, uh, do you have any comments before we end the lecture? Um, no. Okay. There's the back into this lecture. Uh, they had also asked me to talk about pancreatic trauma, but we were clearly not going to get around to that. And I think it was already very charged. Uh, yeah. About so probably in the future it would be best to split it to just having a session for pancreatic masses and solid than having a separate session for pancreatitis because it's quite a bit of ground to cover. Agreed. Um, we just have uh, two um, two important updates. Um, the first one is that we have a new up, a website for our um, uh, for search Kuwait and it's going to be sent through the chat and it's going to be on Twitter and Instagram. Hopefully all of you guys can go on the website. You guys can watch the previous, uh, previously uh, uploaded the videos of the lectures um, and uh, you can get all of them in the, in the education uh, part of the website. Uh, the next thing is that our next session will not be on Wednesday. We're going to have a break. You guys can watch the videos of the previous sessions you missed throughout the week. And our next session will be on Sunday, inshallah. Uh, thank you guys. And uh, thank you, Dr. Jad, again. It was very informative. Thanks, um, guys. It was a pleasure having you with us. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Thank you.